Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all about the books of Rick Riordan. Uh, today, we will be continuing uh, The Lost Hero, the first book in the Heroes of Olympus series. Uh, but first of all, I feel like we should just talk about all the shit going on right now. Let's <laughs> tentatively call it the new segment. The new segment. Uh, so... I believe we already discussed last week that the casting was announced for Annabeth and Grover. Yeah. You know, the first hour, I was really <laughs> like, wow, everyone is being, like, nobody is being racist about this uh, for, like, an hour. And then I hit refresh on the posts again, and wow, it turns out everyone was being super racist about it. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's it's been fairly relentless. Uh, it's 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 horrible. So I'm I'm not here to talk about the positions of the racists. Like the people are uh-huh. like, oh, it's different than it was in the books. And they're using the like, oh, everyone got mad because they changed Annabeth's hair color in the original movie. Well, why mm. shouldn't this matter? Too? It's it's very obvious bullshit. Like you know, it's being made in extremely bad faith. Yes, extremely. Um, mostly, I guess I just want to talk about Rick Riordan's responses to this because uh-huh. I think. I think there are two separate responses that happened. Yeah, because uh, you, you on the bonus episode, I believe, you kind of foreshadowed that you wanted to talk about something that he'd said. And then between then and now, he came out with like a much more extensive statement about it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I first, I want to talk about the initial thing, which is not exactly a statement, but is, uh, I, w- I would say, similar. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I want to talk about the, the most recent statement. So uh, in on uh, May 8th, uh, Rick posts a blog post called Mother's Day slash my first week at the studios. Uh, happy birthday to all the moms out there, by the way. <laughs> basically, this goes over like, oh, the new Percy Jackson covers are out. Here's a bunch of uh, like Rick Riordan's present, presents books that are coming out. Uh, here's what the, the studio stuff is going like. And uh, this is, you know, talking about like, oh, everything's going well. The one thing uh, that happens that I think sort of felt like basically to me felt like a response uh, like very vaguely mm-hmm. was Rick Riordan uh, near the end says, uh, all that said, I'm delighted to hear about the overwhelmingly positive response to the casting announcements. It is well founded. Rest assured these actors are 100% my choices, my decisions, and I cannot be happier with how things are going. Uh, if you have any doubts, wait until you see them back on the show. You'll quick, you'll quickly see why I chose them and why I'm so confident. And then afterwards, like about, about a, after another paragraph of like talking about the beautiful weekend, uh, he he says, "Oh, and a cool random fact I came across this weekend while rereading my Greek mythology. For inspiration, I often do this, going back to the earliest source material and also reviewing seminal works like Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth and Greg Nagy's The Ancient Greek Hero in 24 Hours." Did you know that gray in gray-eyed Athena doesn't necessarily translate as a color? I like the idea of her having stormy gray eyes, and always described her that way in my books. But the ancient Greek term, insert ancient Greek term here, can also be translated as bright-eyed, as in wise or perceptive, and shares a root with another word, which means owl, Athena's sacred bird. In other words, Athena has bright eyes like an owl. Who says that to be gray? Not this owl. So do you kind of get why I say that this feels like it's kind of a response? Yeah, in isolation, this definitely sounds like a kind of very limp-wristed, refusing-to-really-address-it kind of response. 
Yeah, because what it sounds like is Rick Riordan basically saying, hey, like, hey, I make certain artistic choices in the book that don't even necessarily track to what the myths are originally saying. Uh, therefore, like, casting choices and stuff, like, they don't have to match up like that. Um, but I think it quickly became apparent that that kind of response was not going to be sufficient. Mm-hmm. He kind of had to switch into fucking full blast mode. Yeah, and so on May 10th, uh, Rick Riordan posts Leah Jeffries as Annabeth Chase. I'm not going to read this whole post because it's it's pretty long, but I want to point out just some key highlights. Yeah, you can find it on his website. It's up there. Uh-huh. It's the most recent news post. Uh, this post is specifically for those who have a problem with the casting of Leah Jeffries as Annabeth Chase. It's a shame such posts need to be written, but they do. Uh, basically, he goes on to say that the response has been overwhelmingly positive, but... Uh, if people do have a problem with the casting, they should take it up with him because he's the one who made the choice and uh, basically says, like, we should all be able to agree that bullying and harassing a child is bad. You'd think. Uh-huh. And that all the negative comments that that Leah Jeffries has received online are out of line and they need to stop. Uh, I He really is doing his teacher voice in this, uh, <laughs> in this blog post. God, I didn't uh, think of that, but you're right. I was quite clear a year ago when we announced our first open casting that we would be following Disney's company policy on non-discrimination. We did that. The casting process was long, intense, massive, and exhausted. I have been clear as the author that I was looking for the best actors to inhabit the life personalities of these characters, and that physical appearance was secondary for me. We did that. And I, I actually, I do respect this next part quite a bit because Rick Riordan basically says like, People online are offended when people call them racist and will say, but I'm not racist. Uh, It's not racist to want a character who's accurate to the book's description. And then basically he tears that apart in a really good way, which is basically like, hey, it doesn't fucking matter. This is the best actor. Uh, This is my choice as the original author. Basically that kind of thing. The, The one of the most quoted segments here being you are judging her appropriateness for this role solely and exclusively on how she looks she's a black girl playing someone who's described in the books as white friends that is racism and i i I just i don't know i'm i I think this is a pretty good statement all things considered it's very good it's very comprehensive Mm -hmm. it it has absolutely no truck with any of the arguments that the um racists are making about this uh, yeah, I yeah. just really appreciate that. Because I was worried when you said that he'd made like a kind of limp looking response. And again, before this came out, it did kind of look like it was just a limp response. But yeah, this is like very comprehensive. Definitely. Uh, he ends it off by saying the core message of Percy Jackson has always been that difference is strength. There's power and plurality. The things that distinguish us from another often are marks of individual greatness. You should never judge someone by how well they fit your preconceived notions. That neurodivergent kid who has fell out of six schools, for instance, may well be the son of Poseidon. Anyone can be a hero. If you don't get that, if you're still upset about the casting of this marvelous trio, then it doesn't matter how many times you read the books, you didn't learn anything from them. I think, yeah, I, I appreciate that he put the statement out as well. So. We, we often say this ironically on this show, but I would like to give a sincere thank you, Rick, very based. Thank you, Rick, very based, <laughs> for sure. I had like two things I wanted to say about this because I went and read it in advance. So the first thing was um, 
it was very cathartic after some of the stuff that we called out in Kane Chronicles for um, Rick to acknowledge that, like, yeah, everyone has unconscious racist biases. I have those. Yeah. So it's just, it's, because it kind of supports some of the stuff we talked about in Kane Chronicles, where it seems like, despite not receiving a lot of backlash, he knocked off some of the really dodgy stuff from Red Pyramid as he went on. So I'm, you know, I'm glad that he's introspective enough to recognize that he can fuck up and make those mistakes. Agreed. Uh, second is just kind of an accessory to this that I kind of wanted to put forward. Uh-huh. Which is just, like, even if you could, like, put your hand on your heart at, like, the fucking pearly gates or something, and say that you genuinely only care about this from, like, an accuracy standpoint because you care about, like, the adaptation capturing the spirit of it, and you are not willing to concede any ground that, like, maybe your objection could be founded in racism... Ask yourself if it's worth handing ammunition to people who are racist by complaining about it. Like, no matter where your uh, objection is coming from, it will be co-opted and used by racists. So the the best thing to do might just be to shut your mouth about it. Definitely. I think that's I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I think that's all that I, I have to say. There's a mythomagic section on this website. There is a mythomagic section here. Oh, it's not for the fucking game. Wait, it's not? It's not. It's just for the um, the current uh, TV adaptations. So it's the Kane Chronicles Netflix stuff and the Percy Jackson Disney Plus stuff. Well, that's kind of disappointing. This is bullshit. Fuck you, Rick. No. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, Rick Riordan. We hate you. <laughs> uh, uh, I think we should start in on the chapters this week. How about it? That sounds good. Uh, you want me to deliver the summaries? Oh, let's go. All right. Chapter 9. Piper. While Piper is unconscious, she dreams of her last day with her dad, when they went surfing on a beach near Big Sur. We learn that he's a rich and famous celebrity actor, and he and Piper have a strained relationship, so she acts out to try and get his attention. The only other time they really communicate is by playing a game called Any Three Questions, which is what it sounds like, and she opens up this round like she always does, by asking about her mom. Uh, Piper asks if he thinks she's dead, and he tells her about Ghost Country in the West, a story his dad told him about a land where the dead live. Her mom may as well be there, because she's not coming back. Their conversation is interrupted by his assistant Jane, who delivers the bad news that because Piper stole, quote-unquote, a car, she's going to be shipped off to wilderness school. Her dream shifts to the all-too-familiar mountaintop her father is held at, where a giant man made of earth who calls himself Enceladus insists again she serve him, lest her father be consumed. She wakes up in the big house, where both Rachel and Argus are attending to her. Rachel tries to encourage her by mentioning Jason was here too, and they'll definitely be working together in the future, but this only makes Piper feel guiltier. Now it won't be just some faceless nobody she'll need to betray. Still, she can't move forever. It's time for the campfire. Chapter 10. Piper. After an energizing, fun, and only slightly embarrassing campfire song, Chiron begins the night's discussions. After some complaining from Ares' cabin about Capture the Flag being off, the topic moves to Percy. Annabeth fills the rest of the camp in on the plot so far, and Drew chimes in that it must be the Great Prophecy happening, which Rachel confirms. She goes to recite it once more, but she can't complete it because Jason interrupts her, finishing it in Latin. Somehow he started too. It's obvious to everyone that Hera has given Jason a quest. Some Ares kids argue since Jason hasn't even been claimed yet, but that isn't actually true. Jason stands up, 
flips his coin into a golden lance, and calls lightning down from the heavens. He's a son of Jupiter, lord of the sky. Everyone is baffled by this and what it means for the pact, but there's no time to contemplate Zeus's infidelities, because Rachel delivers him a brand new prophecy. It goes as such. Child of lightning, beware the earth. The giant's revenge, the seven shall birth. The forge and dove shall break the cage, and death unleashed through Hera's rage. Piper can tell Annabeth and Chiron may know what the giant's revenge means. Annabeth turns down joining Jason on the quest because the prophecy basically names who has to go with him, the forge and the dove, children of Hephaestus and Aphrodite. Leo volunteers immediately, saying he has a solution to not being able to travel over Earth. Uh, Drew volunteers as well, but her argument ultimately falls on deaf ears because everyone is too distracted by Piper, suddenly going through a transformation sequence that ends with her in beautiful clothes and makeup. She's been claimed. All hail the daughter of Aphrodite. Chapter 11. Leo. Leo runs off to enact his plan after seeing Piper transform, and takes the time to mentally recount to us his history with Tia Kalita, who he's sure was actually Hera, putting him inside a fireplace to nap, letting him play with knives, trying to make him fight rattlesnakes, etc. Regular Hera stuff. Over the years, his mom, a mechanical engineer, teaches him about machines and warns him against using fire. One night, though, his mom got locked inside her workspace, and a woman who looked like Tia Kalita appears, appeared before him. She's not as Tia, though. She's a strange woman wearing clothes made of earth who appears to be half asleep. She promises to hurt his mother so that one day, when he arises to oppose her, he will remember this night, and in his rage, Leo uses his fire. The woman smiles at this, for she knows she's won, and Leo passes out only to wake up in an ambulance. The warehouse caught fire with his mother inside, and the police believe he started it. And so begins the cycle of him running from foster home to foster home. Back in the present, he steals himself. One day, he hopes to build a grand flying ship. But for now, he set his sights on going into the woods and capturing them in a different mode of transportation. Chapter 12. Leo. It takes a while, but Leo finds the main dragon trap his cabin set out. A big vat of oil and Tabasco with a net attached. When the bronze dragon finally shows up, it's pretty pissed, but Leo is also frustrated. It doesn't even have wings. Leo tries to talk some sense into it, but they both end up falling into the trap regardless. He manages to get to the top of the dragon's head without being crushed, and after calming it down, dives into trying to fix the control panel. After a few hours of work, he manages to figure out that the control disc is corroded, and so the dragon's higher reasoning is wonky, and also to fix it. After the job's done, the dragon's feeling a lot better, and Leo names it Festus. With Leo on its back, Festus runs further into the woods, where they find an airplane hangar-sized cave workshop called Bunker 9 that hasn't been used since the late 1800s. Leo's amazed by all the wild stuff in there, including plans for a flying ship that Leo has seen before in his dreams. No time to build that, though. They've only got a few hours before morning to find something that'll fly. That's when Festus directs Leo to look towards the ceiling, where he finds mysterious shapes hanging above them. Whatever it is, he thinks he can use it, so the two get to work. Uh, so Jane, what'd you think of these chapters today? I I feel like we're missing a vital part of um, the world of Percy Jackson here. What's that? Uh, I would really like when someone hears Percy's name for the first time, for their reaction to be, Oh yeah, is that that cult leader terrorist kid who was on the news a few years ago? <laughs> Holy fuck. <laughs> I never thought about this. 
It just it occurred to me while we were going back through some of our old episodes that like yeah, Percy was like on national TV gun battling Ares. Yeah, he he got into a rifle fight on television. <laughs> he was he was like a world he was fucking like He was public enemy number one. He was he was a sensation, absolutely. <laughs> You're right. That is kind of I wish that happened. I hope that happens at least once. I, I have my fingers crossed. I really enjoyed these chapters. Same. I think this this book is still pretty solid. Uh, nothing nothing blowing my mind yet, but just very good. I think uh, Leo's picked up a little bit. Leo has pretty much gone exactly where I kind of wanted him to go. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's basically where we predicted he was going to go last week, where it's like, oh yeah, he's got a traumatic backstory, which kind of it explains his whole deal. I also really like that, like, because that person specifically said they were going to break his spirit, and Leo has kind of taken that as like, well, fuck you, I'm going to I'm gonna tell jokes all the time to show you my spirit's not broken. Uh, that kind of explains why all his jokes are shit. Uh-huh. Because he's not telling them to make other people laugh. He's telling them to kind of show off how irreverent he is. Right. He's not like... He doesn't like being a funny guy. What Leo does is that he jokes to cope with his trauma and to, like, spite someone and also to try to make bullies not hurt him. Some of- people use telling bad jokes to cope exactly exactly he is neurodivergent and a minor called like, the Ola. they really are jesus uh and like in this case i really think that fits with him like mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to be someone who like is super i mean he is super self-satisfied with his jokes all the time yeah. but i think it also tracks with like okay this isn't like a thing he likes to do necessarily yeah, like, it's not being done out of a sense of, like, I want to make these people laugh. It's, let me show you how not owned I am. Yeah, or else, I want to make these people laugh so they don't bully me. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting element that I wasn't quite expecting it to go with. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. glad that it did, though. Well, did, you, did anything jump out at you from these chapters? From these chapters, I think uh, mostly is that we have uh, uh, the best character in the book was introduced. Oh, I don't know why, but Piper's dad is like endlessly fascinating to me. Oh, interesting. Like, I just want to know. I just want 10 books on his story. There is a lot of really interesting stuff that's being like set up and hinted at with him. Like, it kind of seems to be heavily implied that he's a son of Poseidon. Whoa. Okay. I'm I'm curious why you say that. Well, because um, Piper mentions that uh, he like... He is effortlessly able to surf despite being born as a poor kid in rural uh, Milwaukee or Oklahoma or somewhere. Oklahoma? A state. I don't know American states, but she's somewhere landlocked, basically. But he's effortlessly able to do surfing. I'm from Oklahoma. You should know this. (laughs) Also, Milwaukee isn't a state. Is it not? What is it? No. It's like a city. Oh. Well, this... uh, Listen. Jane, quick. Is Chicago a city or a state? I know that Chicago is a city. Okay. <laughs> is New York a city or a state? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Okay. You've passed the test so far. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a... Uh, what was... You, you said there was another piece of evidence, too? Uh, or is it mostly just the surfing thing? Mostly just the surfing. I also just feel like the description is very evocative of Poseidon. Where it's like, oh, he's got his big sad eyes. He's got his, like, um, his black hair with, like, the salt from the ocean in it. That kind of thing. 
Uh, yeah, I totally get that. I think it is definitely evoking some of that on purpose. Uh, and I'll go into why, but I want to, I want to maybe counterpoint you a little bit. All right. Uh, we, we learn about his dad in these chapters. Oh, fuck. (laughs) We explicitly hear about his dad, who he is genetically related to by blood. Well, I'm quitting the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck, you're right. (sighs) It's fun podcasting with you sometimes. <laughs> All the time, I actually. Just, I will just let you score a completely open goal on me. <laughs> no, I, I I, think the reason you're picking up on that, though, is for a very good reason. I think it's because it's being intentionally evoked. Because uh, Piper's dad is, a long, is in the long tradition of Poseidon and other shitty dads of Percy Jackson. That is also true. Like, I... He's... He's a really interesting shitty dad to me. I don't know. Like, everything about him is... Ex- he feels like... like I want a BoJack Horseman-style show about him, is basically what I'm, <laughs> is what I'm meaning. Yeah, it's it's a very, like... It's a complex kind of shittiness. And I think, like, the whole way that it works is very effectively summed up in um, Three Questions, or whatever it's called. Uh-huh. Where it is just, like... Yes, there is, like, openness and transparency here, and, like, a a certain amount of respect, but it is so limited that it's basically not worthwhile. Exactly. It's it's a very good way to sum up that relationship. Like, the extent of Piper's relationship and communication with her dad is in a fucking game you would play while driving through the interstate. Like, boy. Yeah. Like, it's... It's incredibly well done. Like, that's a great... I think this game, you're right, illustrates so much from just, like... And and the fact that he won't even let it complete in this case. Like, the only game we've seen of any three questions that they play, she gets one question in. She gets one question, and it's about something that she asks about all the time and never gets any satisfactory answers about. Right. And I think that's, like, this guy... But he's also, like, quietly sympathetic in a certain way. Like, you can tell he's just been through the fucking ringer. Uh, and Jacqueline, I feel like you are at this point. You are the women that Piper describes, who are like, "Oh, they want to fix him. They want to find out what that sadness is all about." I want to find out what the <laughs> sadness is all about. I know he's a bad dad. I know that his kid is having problems, but mostly, I just want to see the movie where he played an ancient Greek king. I I really love that detail. I feel like it's very relevant this week. Uh huh. Because I feel like it is kind of like. A, a kind of little sideswipe at like racist Hollywood casting practices. Yes. Where it's like, yeah, fuck it. If you squint a Cherokee dude, looks kind of Mediterranean. Yeah, put him in a Greek costume. Right. And I feel like that's also something that will like, is kind of an inversion. Not to say this has never happened, but it also feels like more so an inversion of a more common practice, which is just like, oh yeah, this, this guy looks kind of, me- this guy is like a Mediterranean or whatever. Let's make him. Let's make him the Native American guy. Yeah. Like, that's that's very much a thing from, like, if you watch any fucking, I don't know, John Ford movie or whatever, you'll see this happening. I've not heard of this guy, and from what I'm hearing, that's probably a good thing. Just like, any, if you see, if you watch any old Western, I guess I'm saying. Mm. Ah, right. And so I'm like, oh, wow, this is like a type of guy that I have, like, seen before, is like, poor kid from oklahoma who is i don't know like weirdly 
this like has this quiet sadness and I I want to know about his story. I want to know how he became a famous Hollywood actor. I want to or I think that's what he is at least. I want to know like uh-huh. how he became this mega celebrity. I'm I just want to know. I want to know more. Uh I I couldn't find anything about Ghost Country and like like looking this up online, could you? Oh, I I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't look. Okay. <laughs> that's fair. I figured it was one of those things where like if it's important the book will get into it later. I guess I more so meant, like, is this a real thing that is, like, a commonly held Cherokee belief? Uh-huh. Or is this... I think more so what it's not necessarily being portrayed as that. It's more being, like, portrayed as, like, a family superstition. Yeah. Um, like, the way that it's, like... There's no invoking of, like, my grandpa told me that the ancestors said this. Like, it's not that kind of thing. Uh, it's more just, like, my dad told me the story that he believes. Uh, mm-hmm. Which I think is more believable i guess yeah there is a lot of interesting cherokee mythology though if uh anyone's ever interested in looking into it i should probably do that since piper is going to be a major character for the next few books could be a good idea uh but i guess speaking of piper uh we haven't talked much about her chapters other than uh just her 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 dad did anything specifically stand out to you about these i mean just like it's not a new thing but I feel like we're really getting the stakes raised for the absolutely fucking horrible decision that Piper's going to have to make at some stage. Yes. Like, everything she learns is like, oh, I'm going to have to stab these people who've been nice to me in the back, not just some randos. Yeah. I, oh god, I could talk about Piper forever also. I think Piper is, like, leveled up as a character here so much. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much artifice to her. Like, there's so much just, like, first of all, Piper is introduced as a character who has fake memories. Uh, a lot of like what she believes about happened in the past like year is just not true. None of it happened. Mm-hmm. Second of all, Piper ends this chapter by being put in a like incredibly ali- self alienating like outfit change by Aphrodite, mm-hmm. uh, and just being like, I don't recognize myself and I hate the way I look right now. Piper is constantly like we learn that she is trying to assert herself in a certain way by acting out in a way that but only because not because she like wants to steal shit but because she thinks it'll get her dad's attention and like she specifically is like a very reactive person like she 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 has a world-class chef and so she asks for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches she could go to any salon in the world so she gives herself haircuts with fucking safety scissors no 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 not just safety scissors Garfield safety scissors. Garfield safety scissors. <laughs> I need to know what these Garfield safety scissors look like. Probably red, red and black. Not red I, and black. Orange and black. What the fuck am I talking about? The or the famous orange cat, Jane. Come on. I was thinking. Of, I immediately went to lasagna. Is I the guess. Thing. I guess that's fair. Man, yeah. And so I think that Piper is so reactive, and she's so like, she does not have much of an identity. I'm realizing. Yeah, and she's just kind of trying to latch onto anything to like get a sense of identity at this stage, mm-hmm. and then finding out, oh no, this sucks, especially with the Aphrodite thing. Definitely, and that's why I think it makes so much sense for her to be like filled with all this guilt and all this like, oh yeah, I am just. It's not like, oh, should I betray these people? It's I am going to betray these people. Hmm. And that is another element of like, oh, she is a fake insofar as she is like 
disguising her motives here. And I think that yeah. this is becoming like a really interesting, I, I am really digging what's going on with her character here. Definitely. And I also just like, in terms of her being given this awful choice between like, either she has to do the quote unquote right thing and let her dad die or betray all of her new friends. Like just as a writer, I trust Rick to follow through on like the consequences of whatever she chooses. Yeah. So I have like it. It has it has some genuine tension. I am not expecting this to be resolved with like uh, bullshit. Get out of jail free card. I don't think so. Like I, I really feel like it's one of those things where I doubt this will happen. But I also could see a full third of the next book or whatever being Piper in a totally different setting, and because she re- fucking betrayed her friends last time, and now she's a villain to them. Kind of like, um, kind of like getting some stuff from Nico's perspective in the PGO books, where he's like doing off doing his own thing for a while. That that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I. Same. And I really like the detail that she is not happy at all with her transformation at the end. Yeah, that's really great. Because it also, like, it also just plays into one of those things that we know about Aphrodite, which is that she is a complete bitch who steamrolls over what anyone else's preferences are. Yes. Like, she will fit you into her very, very narrow idea of what beauty is, because you're her kid and you'll fucking like it. First of all, it's like a very... This is kind of what I talked about with Leo. Leo is a funny boy. He gets put in the humorless Hephaestus cabin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Piper is being set up from the very instant that she sees Drew um, as being like, oh, well, I hate these girls. And now she's in the the uh, Aphrodite cabin. Uh-huh. But also just like there's something because we know this. We already know this from a few pages before that she doesn't want to look like a supermodel or celebrity. No, she was um she was hoping that she'd get into Athena cabin, right? Exactly. Like, fuck, give this girl a break. Yeah, it's it's really sad and like I feel like there is going to be a lot of or what I'm hoping for is for a lot of great tension between her and her mother and like I almost wonder, this is me game theorying. But, like, I almost wonder if this is less of, like, a, oh, the gods, you know, they couldn't stay together because you can't just stay with a human forever, that kind of thing. But, like, maybe her dad, like, pushed Aphrodite away in this kind of way because, like, he knew that this was not going to be a healthy way for a child to grow up. I mean, I can see that happen. I do think, like, we've gotten from, I think Silena mentioned that Aphrodite, no, wait. Hang on. I'm getting confused about a lot of different versions of Silena. Never mind. I'm not going to make a point here. Oh, were you going to mention... Is it okay if I say it? Yes. Were you going to mention Silena in the musical who talks about yeah. how uh, <laughs> Aphrodite stole her boyfriends? Yeah, I got confused for a second there. I was like, oh, well, I guess Aphrodite must have stuck around. But no, that's not in the books. No, I, I don't think it is. But so, yeah, I'm. I feel like this could be... This could go a lot of different ways, almost all of which I'm interested in seeing. Yeah, definitely. Piper is definitely, like, top of the pile of the perspective characters at the minute in terms of just which ones are the most interesting. Definitely. Oh, also, just uh, one last thing from the uh, Piper chapters. Uh-huh. Enceladus is the, the name of the villain, right? Yes. Uh, Grover is going to appear and make a joke that he thinks it sounds like Enceladus. I 
also I, twig that as soon as I saw it. I will fucking bet my right arm on that. Hasn't that exact joke already been made before, though, with a different character? You may be right. Like, it it feels so familiar. Maybe it's just because I I think I read these books before. But mm-hmm. I feel like it just already happened. Like this, this happened in Sea of Monsters or something. I could, I could, I could also just see. You know what it might be? What's up? Might be Grover saying, "God, why do so many uh, villains sound like delicious enchiladas?" He's lampshading that he said it before. Oh God, yeah. Speaking of like your previous experience reading these books, uh huh. I remember you saying ages ago that like um, when you were a kid and you were reading these. You always wanted to go to Camp Harflood and have like the campfire sing along experience. Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. I, I wonder if it's like this one of these chapters that specifically got that for you because it does have a really nice campfire sing along scene. It makes the part of the musical where they have a campfire sing along make sense to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because like I, at first I was like, oh, that's a cute little like extra detail. Like, oh, of course they're around the campfire. They're sing- they're singing a song. It's a musical. But in this chapter, they're literally, like, doing exactly that. Like, the entirety of camp is just singing a nice little song together. And Yeah, I think it's, it's mentioned a few times in the first five books, but it's never shown. Yeah, and here it is shown, and it's, like, it's described as basically what you would imagine it being, which is, like, mm-hmm. it's weird, and it's cheesy, and it kind of sucks, but also it's weirdly, like, exhilarating to be around. I love the detail that, like, it would be horribly cringeworthily awkward in broad daylight, but, like, because it's nighttime, they've got a nice fire going, uh, it kind of, everyone's able to look past that and just do it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I would not be surprised if what you assume is true with, like, what appealed to me about that. <laughs> uh, we should probably talk more about everything going on with this campfire, though. I love that the campfire changes color depending on the mood of the crowd. Oh yeah, that's just such a nice little detail to have going on in the background. It's just, it means that you're kind of simultaneously showing how everyone feels and also lighting the scene in different ways, which is just mm-hmm. nice. A very like, it's one of those visual details that isn't like annoying because it's not like oh I can't see it. It's just like illustrative of a concept in a way that I yeah. enjoy. Uh. I guess we should first talk about maybe just like, do we dive straight into the great prophecy or should we? Okay. Or wait, no, before that, before that, we should probably talk about Jason's revelation. Oh yeah. Because this technically was not revealed in the previous chapters. No, it was just written on the wall and I somehow fucking missed it. Uh Uh-huh. But, but it's, it's honestly a really cool part some Aries asshole shouts like, oh, he's not even claimed yet. Jason stands up, flips his awesome fucking coin. It turns into a lance this time because it landed on tails. So it's just like two different weapons, I guess, depending. Yeah. Which is so good. It's it's even cooler than it just being a sword. So fucking cool. And then he like raises the lance to the sky and calls lightning down. It's the most like dramatic way to do it possible. <laughs> It is just like an extended, very dramatic middle finger to that one Aries kid who heckled him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It feels so petty in a way. All the questions that very quickly get like shushed because they're not important enough to be answered. Like, how does this intersect with everything about the pact are definitely brought to the surface now. Mm-hmm. At least in my mind. Oh, definitely. I, my theory at this point is that there is just like a broom closet in the Lotus Hotel and Casino 
and just like Jason, Bianca, and Nico were just stuffed in there for a couple of a couple of years. <laughs> well, he was in cryo sleep in there, right? <laughs> that that is my theory up until now, which is I I would say strengthened by the fact that um he knows the great prophecy. He knows it in Latin too. Yeah, I I my like oh this guy's a sleeper agent who's pre-programmed with everything he needs to know sense is a off the charts right now definitely uh but yeah let's get into the new prophecy now because rachel does give him a new prophecy there's two prophecy prediction corners in a row our cup runneth over yeah i i almost considered making it three just doing two this episode one for the old one one for this one Uh uh-huh but i let's let's stick to let's stick to this one for now so let's go line by line as as is tradition Uh uh child of lightning beware the earth Sorry, I was getting the book so I can read along with the prophecy. Uh, so, I mean, that's very transparently Jason and whoever that fucker was that killed Leo's mom, right? Uh, yeah, the, the like, the not Tia Kalita. Yeah. And also, uh, we, when we see Enceladus, he is described as being, like, carved out of stone. Oh, yeah, he's just, like, a big talking cliff face. Basically. So it seems like there's a lot of, like, earth going on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that actually goes into kind of an interesting inversion because in Percy Jackson and the Olympians, they explicitly could not fly anywhere because Zeus hated Percy so much. <laughs> uh, and now it's kind of the opposite. It's kind of the opposite. Zeus loves Jason, question mark, or at least doesn't want to kill him. A question mark. <laughs> uh, the giant's revenge, the seven shall birth. Uh, so I assume that these are the seven half-bloods that are mentioned in the, in the Great Prophecy. I imagine so. Don't know who the fucking giants are. Well, the Enceladus was described as being, like, giant or a giant. Mm-hmm. So it's it's probably something to do with that. I just the- mean, like, in a broader mythological context. I mean, I, I figured probably Enceladus was one of them. but Of course, of course. Uh, yeah, it's pluralized, so it's like, where are the rest of them? What's their deal? Uh I'm also, because this is, like, set up in a certain way. Do you think the sentence means the giant's revenge will cause the seven to form? Or the seven forming will cause, the, like, the seven, the seven shall birth the giant's revenge? Like, which one do you think this is saying? I think it means that the, the giant's revenge, the seven shall birth. I think that means that they will cause their revenge. Interesting. Very Do interesting. Do my read on it. I I think I agree with that, which is because like it, it shall birth li- leaves like the active component of that on the seven. Definitely, uh, the forge and dove shall break the cage. Now I think it's at least implying that the forge and dove are Leo and uh, Piper. Probably, yeah. And Hera is the one who's been described as being in a cage. So they'll get her out and then fucking kill everyone. Well, and death unleashed through Hera's rage. Yeah, this is this is this is confusing to the characters in the story, and this is also confusing to me. Hera's mm-hmm. gonna be pissed off. Uh, she's gonna kill people, maybe. Uh, why? Uh, I I don't know that. I do know that I love how fucking dodgy this book is making Hera. Uh huh. Just like it. One of the things in the King Chronicles uh, was that like. Horus and Isis were kind of sketchy, but ultimately, when they became plot critical, they were mostly on the level. And I love that, like, Hera starts out sketchy when she's kind of a side character in the first series. 
and she remains extremely fucking sketchy, even though she is a plot-critical person that they need to save. You know, she's the queen of the heavens and she's in trouble, as Jason puts it. But also she did put a baby in a fireplace. I love that entire part with her, like, as as Leo's Tia. Like, that is... So good. It's so good, because she is just, like... She's trying to, like, go through every single fucking hero she's reared up and, like, put just, like, all the tests to him. Like, like, this is, like, ten different myths that she's just like, okay, well, I guess I gotta make this kid into a hero or whatever. And also, this is um, kind of going back, because last week I think we said that it was interesting that Leo was the only one who Hera hadn't reached out to. Mm -hmm. Uh, this This is no longer true, because actually it seems like maybe... Maybe Piper's the one who's only most recently been contacted by her, in fact. Yeah. Uh, because she's been with him since birth, and maybe same with Jason. But yeah, uh, the, like, the way that Leo tells the stories as well, where he, like, he describes it from the perspective of a baby, where he's like, oh, Aunt Kalita took, picked me up and put me in this weird cradle full of, um, like, glowing orange cushions. And then later translates that to, yeah, she put me in a fucking fireplace. Yeah. Like it's it's a really great way of emphasizing how innocent and vulnerable the child that she was abusing was. Right, and that only makes it more like horrifying because we know what's going to happen. We know that like Leo is ultimately going to cause his mom's death accidentally. Yeah, it's so fucking creepy. Very much so. Uh yeah, I think that's that's all I've got to say about the prophecy. What what do we rate this this prophecy? Out of all the prophecies we've seen, how do we how do we tier list this one? This is a new segment I'm bringing to the prediction corner. Is also <laughs> the prophecy prediction corner ranking corner. Uh, I would say that this one is not very high on the list. Okay. There's not a lot of like ironic twists or double meanings you can really put in this. I would say it seems relatively straightforward. It's just you're gonna fuck up and do something bad. I think. It's pretty good because okay. it's because of that like basic straightforward like hey shit's gonna get fucked after this mm-hmm. like I think that's a good setup for the rest of the series. Um, mm-hmm. I, I get that, and also I I feel like Shell Break the Cage is gonna be like twisted around some interesting way, but I agree that it's not the highest either. Uh, all right, prophecy prediction corner over. What else is there to talk about in these chapters? I don't know. Do we want to check back in with Drew? Oh, yeah. Drew's having a normal one. Oh, she's having a very normal one. <laughs> I'm just, like, watching her so closely. Like, will I like you by the end? Like, will you be written better soon? The answer appears to be no. I mean, for one thing, as we mentioned, we know that she's still an asshole by the time of book three of Kane Chronicles. Uh-huh. Well, I mean... Clarice was still an asshole by the end of PJO. She was just also an asshole that we loved. Yeah, but... Yeah, okay, no, that's that's a fair point. But she was not being an asshole in a sympathetic way to Sadie, I would say. This is true. It's very funny that the person she has been insulting and calling quote-unquote dumpster queen is now her half-sister. Uh-huh. <laughs> Have fun dealing with that. Uh, I like... What do you think of the little, like... The weird, like, enchantment voice duel that they have. This is, this is like, a new Aphrodite power, right? I don't think this was mentioned in the last set of books. It hasn't really been. We've known that Aphrodite cabin kids are, like, 
we haven't talked much about them being like bewitching in any certain way. Yeah, the mostly when they came up in the first five books, it was to like make a joke about how the Aries kids were all sharpening their spears and getting ready for whatever was going down, and the Aphrodite kids were hiding their Gucci luggage and doing their makeup. Right. Or it was Silena who honestly didn't show a lot of like Aphrodite traits, like magic wise mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, she was just a fucking cool hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I'm I'm curious, like, is this like a like oh, this is something that Drew does that like, oh, now suddenly Piper can also do it? Or is this like a more general, like everyone at Aphrodite Cabin actually can do this type of thing? I think this is just getting a bit of backfilling on what Aphrodite Cabin can do, because like most of the cabins have some kind of ability and they never really got one. So I think we're just kind of getting one snuck in now. That makes sense to me. Uh, I yeah, I think that's all I have to say about the Piper chapters. Uh, oh, wait, no, there's, there's, there is an important thing in the Piper chapters also. Oh, what's that? The dynamic between uh, Chiron and Annabeth. Okay. Especially in chapter 10 is incredibly fucking funny to me. Yeah. I just, I love how quickly Annabeth has gotten sick of Chiron's shit. Where he's like, he's stood at the side, refusing to help, and whenever someone says something bad, he says, or it could be even worse. And after a few times, uh, Annabeth just like snipes back in with, all right, Captain Sunshine, thanks for the help. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good because like, Chiron and Annabeth have known each other forever. Yeah. Like... Like, he's not her dad, but he's kind of a dad to her. He is very, he's very much the second horse dad that everybody has. Yeah, but especially her, because she's been here for, like, ten years or whatever. I think, at, wait, depending on how long she is, she might have actually been around Chiron more than her actual dad. Uh, I mean, it's possible, it's possible, because she didn't go back home for some of that time. Yeah, she spent a lot of it living at Campy around. And, so, like... Like, a very, like, she has a unique relationship to Chiron that most other people don't have, Mm -hmm. especially, like, in how, because she was part of the main group in PJO, she kind of gained a special insight into who he is beyond even just the normal thing that you would get if you were, like, a year-round camper. And so that evolving to, like, this very, like, familial sort of sniping but also the fact that piper can look and see that they're just like having a whole conversation with their expressions yeah they can like communicate with eyebrow waggles yeah it's like it's very it's very good also i think that might be a little bit of um signaling as the aphrodite powers too because i feel like most people couldn't probably read that exchange except for piper yeah, it's also specifically um, attention is drawn to the fact that Piper can really easily read Jane's expression. Yeah. Uh, when she's like approaching to tell him about the stolen car. So I think that is being flagged as like an ability TM. That's true, yeah. Do you think. Are you suspicious of Jane at all? Uh, I'll be honest, I've, I've spent most of the reading with her and it just being pissed that I have a namesake in this series and she's an asshole. <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, every other, like, by every other, I mean one, one other shady uh, figure who's interfered with someone's family life uh, so far in this book has turned out to be, like, evil and related to the gods somehow. So it would not shock me if she was, like, a fury or something. Yeah, I mean, 
I think the reason that I'm super suspicious is because she, like, it's said that she's the one who brokered the deal to get Piper sent to wilderness school. Mm-hmm. And if Piper hadn't gone to wilderness school, none of this would have happened. That's true. Uh, so yeah, because like, it kind of put her in the same place as the other demigods. And so that could be like one of those like, you know, grand prophecy coincidence type things, but it could also be some nefariousness. Yeah, definitely. Now that you mention it, yeah, that is very suspicious. Uh, before we move on from these chapters, one detail that I really loved was uh, my boy Clovis. He's just like sleeping through <laughs> the entirety of the campfire. And when they're just having like a grave conversation about like, I don't, it's like each of our roles to play. He's like, well, uh, I'm here. Are you taking role? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's very good. There's also. Oh, wait, there are two like two things, I swear to God, and then we can move on from these chapters. Sure, there's a lot to say. There is. These are probably the meatiest chapters in the bun. Uh, but uh, one thing, Rachel's personality uh, has completely changed between books, I think. She's less Unless quirky. I'm She's much less quirky, kind of flighty rich girl, mainly because Piper has stolen her shtick as rich girl who doesn't want to be rich. Uh, but she is much more like wisely smiling esoteric prophecy girl like that's kind of become her entire deal i like that that isn't quite it though because like she is acting as wisely smiling prophecy girl but she also is like will just be like oh yeah that's an act that i'm putting on because i'm the oracle now (laughs) like she basically admits that to piper I, I guess what, not not that like her whole thing is that she only does prophecies. More the like that whole part of her life has superseded the character that we had in the original five books. That makes sense. Like, to there's me, not yeah. a lot of that left. Yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm curious like how much of that we might see pop back up. Yeah. Uh, like as things go on, like because there could be interesting interactions there between her and Piper for sure. Like I agree. Mm-hmm. I thought if if this had turned out that her like. Piper's dad was some rich business guy. I do really think that the like competing businesses could have been fun to see. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I what was your second thing? The second thing is just that I really love the uh the poster in the infirmary, which is a satyr with a thermometer in his mouth saying, Don't let sickness get your goat. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, just, it's... it's a very delightful detail, and it's just kind of one of those things that indicates like, oh, Rick really loves and cares about this setting and wants to make it seem like cool and appealing to the reader. Well, cool and appealing, but also very like naturally silly. Yeah. In a, in a way that I super dig. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that too. Uh, let's, let's talk Leo. Let's talk about Leo. Uh, chapter 11 is a fucking horrible, creepy fairy tale. It really is. We've mostly covered it, but like, mm. I don't know what else to say about it other than like, yikes. Hera, what the fuck? Hera, what the fuck? I mean, we fuck? kind of expect this from you, but what the fuck? I think it's important that Hera and also like whoever the woman is at the end, uh, wearing the clothes made of earth who looks half asleep, uh, like, I think it's very important that they look like the same person mm-hmm. because they are basically here with the exact same goal, which is mold Leo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that, but you're right. They're both like trying to influence him in different ways. Like, the the second one wants to break him, uh, but the first one is also like trying to break him into a hero. <laughs> and yeah, they're trying to make him a specific kind of guy. 
Definitely. And so I think that's, it's, it's really well, like, I think that's a good parallel. Uh, especially since apparently the woman is related to Hera somehow, but that's not too surprising. Everyone is fucking related to each other. Yeah, it's, it's Greek mythology. They're all fucking each other. Uh-huh. Uh, and the way that this ends up is just terrifying. Just like Leo Leo burning down the warehouse, his mom dying, everyone blaming him. Yeah, that's really horrible. In a way, it almost feels like Hera set it up. Like, I would honestly have believed it if um, Leo had maybe, like... If Leo had not twigged that it was a different person until later on thinking about it, and I just said, oh, it kind of seemed like Tia Kalita was there as well, I would absolutely 100% believe that Hera had done that. But also, I think the specific detail of her, like, goading Leo into burning his handprint into a wood table... And then later on, that being the main thing that like makes people think that he caught that he was like a little arsonist. Oh yeah, like that specific detail really makes it feel like Hera was trying to set up some grand plan in that specific way. Yeah, because I mean, she is trying to set up a grand plan because she seems to know that she's going to need Leo for this specifically. Right. And so, like, in that way, it kind of feels like maybe Hera wouldn't... Maybe that was also part of Hera's plan. Maybe she expected mm. him to, like, you know, all that to happen to him. Fuck. Yeah, you're right. God, I love how shady Hera is. Same, same. I'm really curious about the, who this other woman is, too. I, my guess would be Gaia. Gaia? I know that was originally your pitch for... um. You, you've been pitching Gaia as a lot of I, answers lately. I've been Gaia-pilled, I think. I'm possibly, I'm possibly still nut pilled from the Kane Chronicles. <laughs> Based and nut pilled. No, I, <laughs> God, no, I, I completely understand you. Um, but there's a lot of Earth stuff going on. Is all I'm saying. It's, it's really just that. Uh, it's just, it feels like it would make sense for Gaia to show up eventually. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Let, do we want to get into the Bronze Dragon part? Let's get into the bronze dragon part. This chapter is not particularly substantial. It's much lighter. Because it's mostly just Leo has himself a little adventure, which is kind of just like the the ant story from Demigod Files with some bits swapped around and fewer characters. A little bit, yeah. The, the same broad thrust of catch the dragon, fix it, use it to solve a problem. Uh, yeah, it does feel like kind of an integration of that story. Like, if you didn't read it before, read it this time. <laughs> Oh yeah, I didn't really, that would be a good way to get people caught up on like what the deal is with the bronze dragon. Uh, I also I do like the idea that like there are hidden bits of camp that have been forgotten about that people don't know because mm-hmm. it has been around for a while, so it makes sense that that would be the case. And also, just specifically, like finding a hidden bunker is always cool. Definitely, like yeah, I don't like you're right. It, this is very much just like children's adventure story. And that's, you know, that's pretty normal. But, like, there are all these little elements that I really like. Uh, did the, the did the vat of Tabasco and oil make you think of um, the King Chronicles part with uh, Sekhmet? Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> there, there is one way to get rid of rampaging evil monsters in this series, and it is to feed them something spicy until they shit themselves to death. Uh-huh. Or until you get to, like, poke around their brainstem. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, do we want to talk about what happened in the 1860s for this bunker to get abandoned? I yeah, let's 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 dive into that. Because my my theory, do you know when the Civil War happened? I do. <laughs> I do this in is, fact. Uh that my theory is that the bunker was abandoned because I don't know, the demigods were too busy fighting in the Civil War. That might turn out to be what it is. Uh, it's it's basically stated to be like the last time it was ever used was then, uh, like sort of in the like later eighteen sixties, but I it really does feel like that was kind of the big thing going on around then. Yeah, I, this also raises an interesting question, which kind of has a couple of different answers, I guess. But like, when did the heart of the West move to America? Oh, that's a good question. Because I had assumed it would have been during the 20th century, which is kind of when America started being like like the dominant global empire. I would say earlier, because I think so much of it had to do with like architecture and power. Yeah. Um, That a lot of these, like, I, I think it would be the 1800s. Like, unless unless you go with the other route, which is like, it was the day that it was founded which eh which i i don't know that i wouldn't care for that i don't care for this in general but i would not care for that uh the the other answer might be just like camp Half-Blood might not get built from scratch every time like the heart of the west moves okay like, olympus is still the bit of the mountain that they sort off and just kind of fly around so they might just move camp Half-Blood in the same way that the labyrinth and hades moves as well that's interesting i never thought about that before but if that's not the case, uh, this puts a bullet in a long-running Jane story arc, which is my very clear memory that at some point Rick Ryden said that the heart of the West was in Nazi Germany. I really have to <laughs> one. I, I forgot that you thought that. I don't... Because it's not in... Nobody has like gotten in touch and said, like, oh yeah, it was in like an edition that they changed for good reason or anything like that. Uh-huh. I don't know where I have, like, fabricated this memory from. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, if this was, like, built in America in the 1860s, that concretely puts a bullet in that. Wait. (laughs) I can finally rest. Wait. I'm... Am I insane? Or did we... At some point, was it said that George Washington was a demigod? It was, yes. He was a child of Athena, I think. So would that imply that Camp Half-Blood existed by then? Uh, not necessarily. Because I think we've seen that demigods don't necessarily have to be in the, the country where the heart of the West is to have demigod kids. That's true. Like, because World War II was entirely predicated on them being all over the world on either side. Right. In this universe. Uh-huh. So, in this universe, let's be clear. <laughs> so George Washington being a child of Athena doesn't necessarily mean that Camp Arthur was a thing in the US. I'm so glad that Percy Jackson does not hold the same cultural space as Harry Potter. Now stick with me here. Okay. <laughs> um, because I'm, I'm really fucking glad that I don't have to see like Facebook posts about like what kind of demigod Donald Trump is. Oh my god. Oh. Yeah, no, I can see it in my mind's eye and it's a nightmare. 
I'm, I'm, I'm peeking into this alternate curtain and it makes me want to die. <laughs> so I'm closing the curtain and maybe closing the episode. Hey, Jacqueline, here's the problem. What's up? If they don't take out any of the World War II stuff for the show, it might it might hit the mainstream enough that those Facebook posts will exist. Uh, I, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to reach the show, you can check us out on twitter.com slash unwisegirls, where we have the links to all our Patreon, Discord, email, personal Twitters. You can support us by going to patreon.com slash unwisegirls. There you can leave us a dollar a month and get the Discord role of Camp Counselor, or $3 a month and get the Discord role of Friend of Bacchus, as well as all of our bonus content. Uh, if you donate to the Patreon, you'll also help Jacqueline no longer be in as much pain as it sounds like she is right now. Please. Uh, and you'll get access to the bonus content. Uh, last week, we talked about the casting of the 14th Doctor, which uh, people were also having a fucking normal one about. Uh, we didn't talk about Homestuck, did we? We forgot to read any. No. <laughs> we probably talked about Batman or something. Probably. <laughs> You need to stop looking at this alternate timeline. I do. <laughs> uh, and for $5 a month, you can go and you'll get the Discord role of Venus is Chosen and all our bonus content. And we'll say thank you, I guess. Uh, speaking of which, this week we'd like to thank uh, Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say at the end... Of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. Bye. 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 <laughs>